Now in turning to our sermon text, which is once again from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we'll be reading, our sermon text is verse 5, but we'll be reading 5 through uh, verse 9 this morning. That's found in the church Bible on page 1369. Titus chapter 1, actually I'll start in verse 4, Titus 1, 4 through 9. This is the word of Almighty God. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to continue your work in this church and in each of our hearts through your word this morning. May the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Be with him who speaks, and be with they who hear, that we might know the blessing, the blessing of Christ upon us. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we look at verse 5 this morning. We were going to look at verse 5 last week with verse 4, but I just got so caught up in grace, mercy, and peace, we just didn't even get there. And that was wonderful last week. You might look at verse 5 and then groan this week thinking, maybe we could have reversed the order and had the the more exciting verse second. Uh, We had the exciting one last week. This week's verse and this statement might feel just like a, a historic fact. Some guy was commissioned to do something, and you're not that guy. So it's a, it's a nice thing to know, but it's not exactly for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And it's not exactly, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's not even, the Lord is my shepherd. Although I, I don't think it's too far from that one. And it's not grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it's one of the most essential sentences to understanding this epistle to Titus. 
Because everything that's written in this book is the working out of this sentence. And so we're going to spend uh, today here and hopefully see that it, it does have, although a historic statement, it does have a, 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 an effect on who we are as the church and uh, how we ought to think as the church. The context is, of course, and I think I've alluded to some of this earlier in this series already, but uh, Paul and Titus have gone on a mission to Crete. You can pick that up from the verse, can't you? Paul must have been in Crete if he left someone there. So there's Paul and there's Titus. And what does Paul do everywhere he goes? He never goes anywhere except to do missions work. And so Paul and Titus went to Crete. We don't have that recorded for us in Scripture. And I think I mentioned before, this is probably one of those events that happened after the book of Acts is complete. Paul is in prison for several years in house arrest, and then Acts ends. But church history tells us, and, and the tradition of the church tells us, that Paul was then set free for anywhere from three to five years. During that time, he apparently went to Spain. Uh, it's recorded that he, uh, he got to Spain by way of the sea. That's one of the early church statements that we find. And he did a mission work in Spain. It was three to five years he was released. So he probably didn't cover all of Spain on his own. But he at least got there. Romans 15, he said he'd been wanting to do it for a really long time. So God gave him his desire and he set foot there and did some mission work. And then church history suggests that he and Titus went to Crete and did a little work there. And then Paul goes on and he goes over uh, to Dalmatia probably. And uh, we'll talk about that more at the end of this series. Uh, but then after that, he's arrested, taken to Rome. And in that year, Peter and Paul are both executed in the Colosseum. One year after, James is executed in Jerusalem, the brother of our Lord. It's a difficult couple of years for the church. And they're right around the corner from this letter being written. So Paul and Titus have been in Crete. They're doing this mission work. And uh, Crete is, is a big mission work. Homer in the Iliad refers to Crete of a hundred cities. He was probably a little exaggerative poetically there. But in Homer's day, there were at least 40 cities and smaller groupings of uh, farmers or whatever on Crete. And by the day of, of Paul, the Roman era, 20 of those cities on Crete were big enough. They had their own mints for their own personalized city coin, which was a big deal, which means there were some quite large cities, 20 at least, that were large cities on Crete. This isn't Paul and Titus coming to a little island in the South Pacific that has five huts. This is a big deal. It's a big mission work. And realize that Paul's release from Roman captivity was three to five years at the most. And he'd already been to Spain. And we know he had at least one and a half more years away from Crete after this letter was written. So how long could he have actually been on Crete? A couple of months? 
and there's at least 20 major cities. Paul didn't get to all the cities, I don't think. But we don't know. But one thing is certain, the work wasn't done. And we need to think about that deeply because we might think whatever work he had done, those churches would be fine. Mission over. Maybe he got to the three biggest cities on Crete. And now there's an established church in every, in every of those three major cities. And they can deal with missions after this. Their churches will be fine. Paul doesn't have that view. Paul doesn't think his work was completed. The church still needs work. I think the church in our day, we, we need to have the humility to think like Paul about where we are at and where our mission works are often at when we leave them. Uh, John Calvin once looked out at his congregation in Geneva at the height of the Reformation and he made this comment, those of you who uncritically tell themselves this is a truly reformed church it lacks nothing are greatly mistaken we must not assume that having worked for a little time we may then live here at our ease I think he's echoing Paul quite well right there I started the work but just because I'm an apostle and I started the work doesn't mean the work is done Titus I leave you there to continue this work. But, well, that brings us then um, to a question I asked last week and we never got to. When would the work on Crete be done? And as we think about that, we can then uh, broaden the question out. When is the work, when is the work here done in our church? Or in any church, or on any mission field that we might support, when is it done? So first we ask, when is the work on Crete complete? And as we look at verse 5, we might be tempted to say, it's complete when there are elders in every city. Remember I, I suggested a few weeks ago what several really brilliant Greek scholars have suggested in their commentaries that verse 5 might best be translated set in order the things that are lacking even appointing elders in every city even and what and a couple of the commentaries even in parentheses put namely set in order the things that are lacking namely appoint elders so if we think of it that way, and I think that is the best translation, even appointing elders, that's how Titus was to set in order the things that are lacking. And if we think of it that way, though, we might be tempted to say, the work in the church is done when there are elders on site. But of course, the, the problem with that is that elders are sinners. And the congregation is full of sinners. And so what Titus is being commissioned to do is continue Paul's work 
but not finish it. Titus' task is to make sure that the work continues and that it continues from generation until generation because the work is never complete in the church until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and makes all things new, eternally, even, even in the hearts of his people in whom he has brought redemption. But it comes to completion when we see him and we sin no more, for we will be like him then. Until then, there are still things that need setting in order in any church. So the small picture is that the work is done when there are elders on site. Remember the book of Acts. Paul and his missionary journeys with Barnabas, they would set up elders before they moved on. Here Paul's saying, for whatever reason, was it persecution? Was it just the Spirit led him to move really quick to the next mission front? We don't know. But he's saying, I didn't actually do everything I usually do here. But I left a man I can trust, Titus, who he had previously sent to Corinth to set things in order. He knew a little bit about a difficult church, so Paul could trust him to set things in order. And Paul leaves him there, but he leaves him there to appoint elders. And that's important because at the end of this letter, Paul's going to say to Titus, meet me in Decapolis, which is in Dalmatia, it's off of the island, meet me this winter. Which... Which means if this was written at the very end of one winter, Titus had ten months at the most to set in order all that was lacking in churches in 20 major cities plus. He's not going to finish the work. But he needs to establish elders who can carry on that work and will carry it on in a, mission, in a mission context, right? Paul probably didn't get to all the cities. Titus won't get to all the cities on the island. So Titus is to establish elders in every city. How, how could he do that in 10 months? Well, he starts with the ones where there are converts who are already the body of Christ manifested there in that local city. And he makes sure that they're established with pastors and elders who can lead them and guide them and correct them and discipline them and disciple them in the years ahead. But then as those elders are building up that congregation, that congregation would have a responsibility, wouldn't it? There's a city with no church 10 miles up the coast. Well, then you send missionaries there. And that mission work isn't done until the elders of this congregation have helped that church get established with their own elders who will then go to the next city up the coast and so on and so forth. Titus, his work is to continue the apostolic ministry in such a way that it dominoes. It dominoes geographically and it dominoes through the rest of church history. That's what verse 5 is telling us. Easy to get, right? Easy. And a struggle. Because, again, there are sinful elders. 
All of them. They're sinful pastors. All of them. And that's where last week's sermon comes in, doesn't it? And there's sinful Titus, who needs the grace, mercy, and peace of God daily, and needs to teach that. And in a a few weeks here, we're going to take a break for at least a week from Titus. Uh, But when we come back, we're going to get into how do you choose the elders? And what's going to keep sinful elders from destroying the church? Are there things that would guard against that? We're going to get into all of that. But what can we pause today and just draw from this one verse? That the work is never complete until Christ returns, but that he continues his work through elders in a local congregation. What, what things can we draw from that? I think it challenges us in our modern context. It challenges us in a, a number of ways. First, it challenges our view of Christ himself. And I don't mean it challenges the world who doesn't believe, don't believe in Christ. I don't mean it challenges those liberals who don't really believe Christ is God. I think it challenges the evangelical, the typical evangelical in our day, who is, because of cultural captivity, remember that phrase we're going to keep coming back to in Titus, the culture affects how we Christians think. And so we've become very individualistic. And part of the result of our individualism is that we often think of Christ only in terms of salvation, not in terms of life. Or or as back in the 80s, the, the big debate going on in evangelicalism, can you have Jesus Christ as Savior, but not Lord? Right? The Lordship discussion. A couple of you remember it. It it still goes on. It just doesn't have a fancy title as much anymore. But, But it's one that if we looked at American evangelicalism today, just from worldly eyes, not believing in the sovereignty of God, but just from worldly eyes, we would have to conclude the lordship debate ended with the lordship losing. Right? You, you look at the church, it's a place where, a phrase we used in our book discussion yesterday, therapeutic, therapeutic comfort. It's all about how I feel. And so I, I want to know about a savior, maybe, maybe. But, but let's even look at just good churches, Bible churches. We want to talk about our savior, for me, from sin, but then we still kind of want to be left alone to live, having been saved, however we want to live. It's a struggle that Satan brings against all of our hearts, every one of us. It's why we struggle with sin. If we didn't struggle with this temptation to want Christ as Lord, get out of jail free card. But no, I'm sorry, Savior get out of jail free, but, but not Lord and King, Master, the one who owns me, that I don't belong to myself. Therefore, he can tell me how to live. He can tell me uh, how to live my life, what things are right and good and true. 
But we want the comfort of the one thing we don't want to be told how to live. And this verse saying the work of the gospel isn't complete with your conversion. It's not complete with you praying the sinner's prayer. The work of the gospel continues in your life. It continues in your life as He has lordship over your life. As the King of kings and Lord of lords is your Lord. And how does He go about setting that in order? Your life, which is a wreck and is rebellious again and again. How does He do it? The text is telling us He does it through local elders in a local body of Christ. But you see that mere fact that there's a right way to have the church. And that right way requires leadership that governs and disciplines and disciples. It requires us to have a high view of the kingship of Jesus. It confronts and challenges how we view him and how we view the whole gospel. Think of, if, if we can only pick one text that shows this, think of the Great Commission. That's Jesus defining our gospel task, isn't it? And what does he say? Go, make disciples, baptize them. That, that biblically has to do with our walk with God, but it also has to do with engrafting into the visible church, doesn't it? You, you can't be a member of the visible church on earth without baptism. Biblically speaking, the historic faith, all the baptism debates... All the, all the confessional, all the, not just even confessional, all the biblical believers on both sides of the debate can agree on that, that the church is part of what baptism is talking about. It's us being engrafted into the body of Christ, visibly. Baptizing and teaching. Teaching What? To do all the things I have commanded. You you see, in in the Great Commission, Christ is presenting a gospel that saves us, engrafts us into His kingdom, and in His kingdom we are taught, instructed, and directed how to live. How do we view the King? This verse challenges how we often view the King. And when we, when we struggle with seeing the Lordship of Christ, it's a sign of what we're going to see as we keep going in Titus, that we, believers, are not immune to cultural captivity. It comes with our sinful, sinful desires. The second thing it challenges then, then flowing out from that, not just from our view of Christ. And by the way, that's why I began this sermon by saying that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is not that far from this text. How does he shepherd? How does he shepherd his church today? Through elders. Remember Jeremiah 3.15? I'll give shepherds after my own heart. And in Ephesians, I'm sorry, to the Ephesians in the book of Acts, Paul makes this comment to the elders. Wolves are going to come in. You're going to have to shepherd. And he even makes this comment. 
The wolves are even among you. You see, Paul's not, Paul's not blind to the fact that sinful elders can sometimes be wolves. But how is Christ going to shepherd his flock despite that? The other shepherds, the other under-shepherds, the other elders are to keep their eyes open. And God has given them to take care when you find out it's a wolf in shepherd's clothing. See how we view Christ as king and shepherd. But well then, flowing out from that, some other applications. It challenges our view of missions. We've already said this in one sense, but I think it's important in our day and age. How we view missions. Uh, the average evangelical church, if you asked what missions was, you might get an answer like, well, it's living in a, another, another country as a light and salt. And that's, that's good. Believers are sometimes called to live in different lands that aren't their native land. And when you are, you'd better live as salt and light, right? But in the Bible, that's the Christian life. <laughs> that's being a pilgrim, <laughs> Missions includes more than just that in the Bible. Missions in the Bible has to do, as we've talked about the Great Commission, with the establishment of churches, the local manifestation of the body of Christ. And so our mission works can include a lot of wonderful things. Bible translation is a big one, right? Two, two of our missionaries are Bible translators, and that's very important. And being salt and light and supporting the church in a region is very important. And housing those who are being trained to establish the church in a region, very important. These are the types of things our missionaries do. But it can never be less than the establishment of the church. It might include a lot of support for the establishment of the church. But it can never be less than the establishment of that And so if all we're doing is getting people to say a sinner's prayer and then not even trying to connect with them into a local church, which I'm afraid is too much of our short-term missions work. You go and you witness in the park, you get someone to say the sinner's prayer or whatever system your group happens to use, and good luck. But there's not often a lot of, by the way, here are three wonderful churches in this city. And can, you want to go to church with me there on Sunday? I'll, I'll introduce you to some people. There's very little of that. There needs to be more of that in short-term missions. And in long-term missions, we need to not abandon fields that don't have eldership in place locally. It, that means long-term view of missions. Discipling as well as converting, Right? Discipling needs to continue. And then a third thing that it challenges, and this has been all throughout the sermon as well, it challenges our view of church officers and church government, which we really need to be have, have challenged in our country. Why? Because we've seen really lousy church government and really lousy church officers in our day and age. And so the average believer, I'm not even talking about how the world views these things. The average evangelical believer 
if they think of church office, are just as likely to think of all the headlines about the Roman Catholic priests 20 years ago here in New England. Therefore, all pastors must be perverts or pedophiles. Or they, or they think of seven years ago. I remember Mary Ellen and I talking about a headline the first year I was here uh, where uh, some inappropriate website, the, the um, anonymous membership, got leaked to the New York Times or someone. And there were hundreds of pastors' names on the list. That's what we think, right? We think of the bad. We think of the abuse. We think of the scandals. Maybe we think of how we've been hurt by elders over the years in our own churches. And so we think, if anything, in evangelicalism today, At best, maybe, we often think, well, the Bible teaches we should have church officers, so they must be a necessary evil. Some of you have felt that way. Hopefully hopefully not currently, but some of you have felt that way over the years. It happens. But this verse... And what follows confronts our view of church officer. It confronts it the way the whole Bible does. By presenting under shepherds. What a different thing that is, isn't it? It's such a a powerful thing. We read about it in 1 Peter. We read about it. uh, We read about it about Old Testament prophets in Jeremiah. We read about it in the book of Acts. Under shepherds and overseers. We read in 1 Peter about humility. We, we read in Acts about guarding and guiding and feeding. That's not a bad thing that's presented to us in Scripture. It's an actively gracious thing from God. And that should be how we view church officers as a blessing from God. The the problem is so often in the evangelical church even when we don't have all the scandals it's hard to find under shepherds because it's hard to be an under-shepherd as a sinner. Some, some of us are leaders, but leaders aren't always good shepherds. A, a leader can tell the flock what to do, but doesn't always feed them and guide them lovingly and graciously. Uh, or the church has tender-hearted men who, who can't rebuke and discipline. See, see, an under-shepherd has to have both sides of that equation. Has to be able to lead and teach. Think of Jeremiah 3.15, which we read earlier again. And God says the under-shepherd, after his own heart that he will provide, will teach the disciples knowledge and understanding. Not just tell them, we're going to that green pasture today. 
but show them the way to get there and why that pasture is preferable to the muck over here. It's a hard calling, but it is a a grace of God to his church. And I think media doesn't only hurt our view of eldership in the with the negative stuff, the scandals. It also it also affects us with the things that it offers that are good but distort our view of the local. Like sermon audio. Like blogs and podcasts. At Those are good things, aren't they? My devotional life is better for all of those things. And I'm thankful for them. But, and this might sound proud, and I hope you don't hear it this way. I've only picked people I respect. I've only picked names I'm about to drop that would agree with me. With what I'm about to say that might upset some of you. But it's more important for your spiritual life to be sitting here hearing this frail, fallible, average preacher than all of your Pastor Johns pick whatever John you want there's a bunch of them out there all, all of your all of your trips MacArthur's, Beggs Piper's, Sproul's Ligonier Ministries, podcasts. That sounds very proud, doesn't it? And it's not what we believe in the average church today, is it? Every month I have someone, not necessarily in this church, telling me that the most important thing for their spiritual walk is this podcast, that blog post, this author. And what all of those men I just dropped their names would agree with if they heard this sermon. Because they all listen to me and follow me. If they ever came across this sermon, all the people I just listed would agree. This is more important for you than all of them. Even though they're far more gifted than I am. Why? Because none of them walk with you through the thorns, thistles, and muck of life to those green pastures or to find the still waters. They don't know your name. They don't know your name. And they don't hear you cry when you get stuck. And they don't see you weep when you're broken. God gives you local eldership who walks with you through all of that imperfectly, sometimes sinfully and in need of repentance, but with you on behalf of our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that how you view church officers? The text challenges us with this. The church in Crete thinks it's fine. 
And the church in Crete maybe would say, well, the best way to be setting everything in order would be a Gallup poll. How do you think you could get the best out of this church ministry? But Paul doesn't play that game. He doesn't leave room for that. Paul, Paul says, don't let the lying, evil, lazy culture tell you what the church needs. Set it in order with biblical qualified, our next verses, elders. It's a very different view. And then finally, it challenges our pride. This, this verse with what it says challenges our pride. Why does God allow generation after generation of the church to be out of order? He's sovereign. He could perfect us in our, in our initial salvation. Why does generation after generation need elders who are sinful to set the sinful church in order? To humble us. To humble us. To keep us coming back to him, seeking him and his word. The imperfection of the church leaves it clear that the church is his building. It is he who makes it, builds it, establishes it, and furthers it. The building of the church is not my job. And it's not your job. He is the one that does it. And he does it again and again, year after year, generation after generation, in and through the eldership, discipling the people who do the work of the ministry. But it is Christ who builds the church. If even an apostolic church plant is imperfect, who are we to think we've got it right? We'll never have to repent as a congregation of anything ever again. There's nothing in how we do things and how we serve the community or how we worship that we'll ever need correction. No. If even the apostle had to send Titus to fix what he left imperfect, we need to have humility like Paul to see the sanctification and the work of holiness as the constant work of the Holy Spirit in his church year after year. Remember what we confessed together uh, last, last week from our statement of faith. No congregation under heaven, even the purest one under heaven, is perfectly pure. But all, all, have both mixture, imperfections, inconsistencies, and error. But remember how we end that statement in our statement of faith? There will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Why? Not because of us. 
but because Christ is ruling and building his church.